Welcome back to Political R&D's Women of AB Poly. I'm Deirdre Mitchell-McLean, and with me today to talk about the AG report that was tabled a week and a half ago by the time that I post this, with me today, Susan Wright and Melanie Thomas. Susan, this is why I reached out, because of the post that you wrote about uh, the AG's report. I just posted one on my um little political blog it's called susan on the soapbox and it's uh it was entitled the auditor general's report six billion dollars is not a rounding error and um i posted well just to give you a bit of my background i'm a i'm a lawyer i have been uh, uh i worked in litigation when i first started in one of the biggest firms in calgary and then i moved in-house and have been in-house with uh publicly traded companies for over you know, like 25 years and i've worked at the executive level with uh, at the VP level with with CEOs, I've seen many many audit reports. I've seen what what companies have to do to um, uh, make sure that they stay on side of the securities regulations when they are actually posting the results. And so when I saw this report, and I saw that the AG actually the Auditor General actually went through it and kept saying things like um, there are are material misstatements. Uh, there were material errors, which then were corrected because the AG actually said to the people putting this report together, why did you record it that way? Um, what, you know, how can you justify that? I was shocked at the level of concern that the AG, in his muted way, um, voiced in this document. So I posted that with just picking out the, the big issues, most of which happened in the Department of Energy um, in the Alberta Petroleum Marketing Commission section. So um, I just wanted to raise a red flag just saying we need to look at this. And unfortunately, it came out right smack in the middle of the uh, uh, Trump-Biden election. So all of our attention was riveted to the U.S. And, and this thing just sort of slid in under the wire. And I thought we really need to take another look. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's why I posted it. And Melanie, it was actually one of the quotes that you did on actually on Susan's article that made me think this would be a really interesting conversation. And as it turns out, you have more background with AG reports too. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the Twitter thread that I posted about this, I'm a, I always find Susan's blogs really interesting because they are grounded in evidence. And then there's always this like really sharp nuanced analysis of like, useful ways to interpret what's going on with that evidence. So every time I see Susan post something, I'm like, excellent. <laughs> I'm going to learn something and it's going to be great. Right. Uh, and so in reading that, I have to admit that I, I wasn't terribly surprised. Uh, I mean, I was surprised 
Um, but like, I wasn't initially terribly surprised that the Auditor General had something to say with how government is, is reporting things because it's not uncommon um, for Auditors General to tell government uh, or public management that they disagree with how things are being defined, they disagree with when things are being accounted in a certain kind of way. And I think you can look at some of this stuff and say that maybe some of that is going on, but there's certainly like bigger, lots of bigger issues here, as Susan had pointed out. And so uh, as a political scientist, so I'm an associate professor in political science at the University of Calgary, uh, I will kind of look at auditors general's reports as forms of current events, but I've also sat on something in Alberta called the Provincial Audit Committee. So I was a public member uh, from 2016 to, to 2019. And I think Alberta is one of the only jurisdictions that has this, where it's a uh, committee of members of the public where uh, drafts of these reports, either from the Auditor General or from government, um, if government's doing some kind of reporting or things along those lines, uh, comes through this kind of public body before it actually gets released. And so you can get uh, feedback from auditors. And so I have to admit, having sat on that, I was very much... Uh, much more useful on things like performance auditing, which is like, is a policy doing what it says it's supposed to do, which is like much more in my wheelhouse. When they get into the nitty gritty of like, did you write this down in an accounting way as best as you could? <laughs> this is where I was like, I will defer to the experts on that. Um, <laughs> So in this sense, uh, this means I'm familiar with Mr. Wiley, and I have a great deal of respect and admiration for his work. Uh, and so I'm always curious to see what they pick up on, because they, they do things within a cycle, and it's one of the ways to get this kind of like longitudinal um, idea of what's going on with government, often uh, either with new initiatives that are coming forward. So if you see, like in this case, the Canadian Energy Centre, or the things that were pointed out um, in this particular report, or to identify when things are working or not working across governments, things along those lines. And so uh, my particular comment on this comes from political science research uh, that looks at how the public views issues and parties. Uh, and one of the things that I found really striking about the 2019 election in Alberta was that the right-leaning Conservative Party, the United Conservative Party, despite being new, despite having no actual record to run on, could just say economic management, jobs, jobs, jobs. And people would be like, of course, you're the most competent at this. Um, this doesn't surprise me because there's this phenomenon in Canada called issue ownership. And I think it develops, like I'm not quite sure I can pinpoint exactly when the development of a lot of these ideas came from, but I'm not surprised that conservative parties are identified broadly with the economy. You could locate this with say Brian Mulroney and the progressive conservatives and the first free trade agreement with the United States. All the other parties were opposed to that. Um, in, including the Liberals, even though the Liberals are like a big corporate business party um, in some respects. Uh, this idea that the Reform Party brings taxes onto the agenda in a way that other parties haven't. And so this idea that economic issues and sound fiscal management, it's quote unquote owned uh, by parties on the right. Um, this to me is the thing that helps explain how in uh, Alberta, without any evidence about what their potential government's performance would be, you can have a party being like, we're going to be the best economic managers. And people are like, yeah, okay. Uh, and then you get this report, like fewer than two years into the process. And it's like, holy God, <laughs> we have some <laughs> problems. Like it's so for me, what I find really interesting is this disconnect between like what the experts are saying and then like broader public um, perception. 
yeah. which is not an uncommon problem apparently in the entire continent. Political uh, <laughs> is so much fun, isn't it's, it? You kind of embrace the dissonances and <laughs> go with it. Um, so, Susan, when you were putting your post together, have have you seen this? Because you've been writing for a long time. So when these Auditor General reports come out, I mean, you've seen one before. No, absolutely. Uh, um, obviously, I don't, I don't have the same depth of experience as Melanie has with going through as many of them as she has. And, and I'm, I'm quite interested to circle back to Melanie's comment about getting to see drafts uh, before oh. they go forward. Because um, uh, just but to answer your first question, I was looking at, uh, I looked at the ones that were, had been done under the NDP government, and um, as it was quoted in the Globe and Mail, by the, the associate or assistant auditor general said he had seen um, the same, maybe the same number of errors, but nothing of this magnitude before. Okay. So that tells you that $1.6 billion is, is huge magnitude of, of error. The, the second thing was I went back to take a look at the auditor general or yeah, the auditor general's report for last, uh, the last year that the NDP were in power to see how the energy minister did. And there is nothing of this scale in, in the uh, comments that were made and the changes that were made as a result of the AG's review. So uh, the NDP and a minister of energy had done a much better job, or at least somehow the sense went through all the departments and all the, the subset of organizations that were responsible to that minister that we need to do this a certain way. The thing that troubled me a lot about this and I'll tell you from my experience in, like I said, almost 25 years in-house, I've worked with quite a few um, CEOs who work really hard to present their message and can be what we called in the legal field very aggressive with their information. And the job of the lawyers and the accountants is always to, to rein them back to say, before you can say this publicly, you need to demonstrate that there is evidence supporting that. So you can't just go out there and say whatever you want because you know it's going to help the share price. If you're going to say we're going to make X dollars in the next quarter, you need to show me the calculation and it needs to be founded on good facts. So the one that blew me away with this, this energy, this, this auditor general's report was the fact that on February 11th of this year, Jason Kenney said in a, in a press conference to the media, which is your classic method of, of putting your information out into the public, that, uh, that they had unloaded eight crude by rail agreements. And then on March 31st of that same year, the, it turned out that they had actually, un, or no, he had said they'd unloaded all 19. Right. All 19 of the crude by rail agreements were gone on February 11th, according to Jason Kenney. And then on March 31st, it turned out that only eight were actually unloaded. The rest were still on the books and the rest were still a drag on, on our financial picture. That kind of error, I mean, a two-year-old can tell you the difference between 19 and eight. It's not a complicated question. So um, I was thinking back to my interactions with my aggressive CEOs, and I thought I would never have had to have a conversation like that with a CEO to say, where'd you get this? But what the Auditor General had to do was sit down with the, uh, the, the people in the APMC accounting group or wherever and say, why did you record it this way? And they said, because we intend to sell the rest. Right. <laughs> well, I intend to sell my house down the road, but that doesn't mean I can sort of put in my bank account that I have this much money saved. Right. No. Yeah, so it, it really bothered me that this level of misstatement happened not only in, in the audit report, but by the premier to the public 
a good three or four weeks before that. I mean, and we all know the politicians say things and, and th say things in a rosy way, but 19 and eight, you know, th that's a huge, huge discrepancy. And the thing that I find really perplexing about this is that you don't have to follow politics very long to know that, like, precision is not something that politicians are a big fan of in their public statements. Right. Like, at, at the risk of sound, like, it kind of beggars belief that the problem we would have is that the premier is being quote unquote too precise with the number. Like he didn't have to say, oh, we've unloaded all the contracts. He could just say we've unloaded rail by like uh, oil by rail contracts. The average member of the public isn't going to know the number that we actually have. So this is a, con and he knows this, like he is not a dummy. He's not a newbie political operator. Like he's been around the block a few times. And so he would know the political dynamics of this. And so he's making a conscious choice to actually like release that level of number, even though it's false. And so this also gets to this idea about the, um, this is something that I saw in the uh, like, uh, circus that was the American election and continues to be the American election, but the somebody saying it's, it's really nice to see somebody who's going to make norms normal again. And as somebody who's been watching Alberta politics with increasing alarm, uh, one of the things that I find uh, that this report highlights is which norms are being eroded when it comes to Alberta politics. And this idea that you would like not lie about what's happening with like it, with that particular level, like there, it was that, that kind of public facing was, comment was absolutely unnecessary and it gets them into trouble with this. The other one that I found uh, particularly uh, like from a moral perspective, really problematic was uh, and punching down in a way that's just, I think, inappropriate. Uh, the switch for age payments from like lagging mm. a few days before the first of the month to the start of the month, the choice for that was to actually say that they were only like on the books for 11 months worth of age statements or age payments as opposed to the full year like they are. And the Auditor General is like, no, that's not how this works. Um, and so like it, it didn't work. And in the meantime, like how many like negative consequences has that had on some of the most vulnerable Albertans that we've got? Like, like what a thing, what a thing to try to do. The thing that gets me, like Susan did a really good job of like articulating um, the like financial competence problems with this. But the thing that I found really striking as a political scientist is the number of times I could go see an error uh, and see a political motivation for it. So it's not just like, they don't know what they're doing. I think there's an element of folk know what they're doing and they're still making conscious choices to cook the books because the politics is better, even though the politics are not good about it either. Like it's one no. of these things are like, what? What is even happening? <laughs> I think that's a really important point actually, Melanie. That was the part that was troubling me an awful lot. As you said, I focused more on the financial side on the APMC side. And uh, what, what I was thinking was, Normally what happens when you're doing any kind of auditing or budgeting or any kind of exercise involving the finances of an organization, you get a message from the top as to this is how we're going to do it. This is the this is our objective, whatever, and it, it fits within accounting parameters. Um, I was concerned when I read this report that there was an, a level of ideology coming through and a sense that, um, well, certainly in this case, in February, the premier said we sold 19 contracts. We have to make the books reflect that we sold 19. Even though we didn't, we sold eight. And we as accountants, we as professionals who have a, a, a professional responsibility and a code of conduct, 
we'll find a way to work ourselves into that corner that we can stand there and hand on heart say, yes, this is accurate. And it took the outside auditor to look at it and say, explain to me why this works. And this, this really bothers me because it's the kind of thing that when Melanie was talking about norms, uh, when you read people like Timothy Snyder, who says you really get into trouble with authoritarian governments when the guy at the top can make people who know better do things that are wrong and then mislead everybody. And this actually causes me a great deal of concern as well, because one of the things that political scientists say consistently, if you've got something like a contested election, um, like the most extreme example is Belgium, places that need a coalition government didn't actually get a government sorted after an election for an entire calendar year, a little bit more, right? Which is like not ideal, but anytime that you would see like um, it taking a little bit of time for things to get settled or that there was something like really unstable as a result of an electoral outcome, the thing that we would say is that a lot of government operations are day to day and they're run by a professional civil service and they are like eminent professionals in their field. Um, we keep them anonymous precisely because we want to protect them. Like this is the trade-off. They get anonymity. That's because the public facing political leaders would take the fall for anything bad that happens. And like it's democratic accountability, right? But the good thing about this is that um, things are stable over time. I am imagining somebody like probably below the director level who's actually doing the day-to-day -day work of something like this, having this conversation before being like, you were asking me to cook the books and what they're getting is direction from on high being like, this is what you would do or else. And this is, this is, a, this is a problem, um, not just in terms of like democratic accountability, obviously, but what you want is for your professional civil service, regardless of who's in government, to be able to say, to draw that line in the sand and professionally be like, this is where that line is. Um, uh, and to be able to push back from that kind of political direction. And so and I, I, we've always, like one of the things that we really wondered in say 2015, when the NDP one was what's this civil service gonna do? Cause this is like the first time that many of them have actually had to do like any kind of like, partisan change of government. Um, and they did fine. Like, I'm not surprised that they did fine, but they did fine. Uh, what I'm worried about in this particular context are the norms that are being developed in the civil service of the, you get the political direction and you just do it, even if that's not the best reflection of reality or it's not competent. Like that, that we're doing a disservice to those professionals in those offices. If, if uh, we read between the lines and what we think that we see between the lines is actually happening like that's that's not okay. I spent over two decades in the, in the private sector. Um, I've been on the, the other end of those conversations with the CEO and with other important high level people and my staff and I would have to push back. And when I think about how Jason Kenney talks about how the private sector does it better, I can tell you that a good private sector company will actually allow its, its uh, knowledgeable staff to push back. The auditors, the accountants, the lawyers, the engineers who say this pipeline is going to blow up if we do blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So they spend more money not to do blah, blah, blah. Um, I have been in meetings where lawyers have looked at the, the VP in the eye and said, I will not sign off on that document, period. And they don't get fired. What happens is you have a big argument because the, the, um, uh, what you're saying is if you're going to do that, Mr. VP, you're taking that challenge, that risk on yourself. And if you go to jail at the end of the day or there's a securities uh, uh, investigation, that's your neck on the line, not mine. I will not cover for you. 
So in a good corporation, the, the professionals have the ability to push back and not get fired. I mean, they may not get promoted, but they're not going to get thrown out on their, on their ear either. So this really troubled me because I think it goes to Melanie's point about the erosion of norms and the feeling that you cannot push back. I, I don't understand how someone could make an, make an error like this, quote unquote. Right. I just don't understand it. Yeah, what I suspect is actually happening is that there, there's a heavy-handed instruction that's coming down. That, that's what I, that strikes me as the most likely. And like this goes to any number of other policy domains. I think the attitude is very much that we can't admit that we might've made a mistake. Uh, this idea that like maybe picking a fight with the doctors during a pandemic was a dumb idea. Or like maybe like not consulting on parks while we blow that up is a dumb idea. And maybe we shouldn't have done that. Or maybe like actually cooking the books so that the while well, the Auditor General then tells on us is not like this idea that they might like, like the, the kind of like, whoops, like maybe we'll like course correct. Like this doesn't seem to be in this government's like, uh, playbook at all, which I like that rigidity is concerning. Um, but the other thing I think um, is this, it goes to this other trope about Alberta politics, which is that um, 2015 was an accident, super disrespectful to say that to voters, by the way, that they somehow like accidentally cast their ballots in like the way that they did, but leaving that aside, um, I think there's this idea that they can do this and um, not be held accountable because they don't think that they're ever going to lose an election. And I, I honestly think that a lot, like if there was this like genuine fear that something like this report and the magnitude of problems that it shows, uh, if that was actually doing what it would be supposed to be, we would see those course corrections. We would see a lot more flexibility. We would see a lot less rigidity. We'd see a lot less hostility to other ideas. Um, but all of those norms have been eroded as well. But I honestly think that on a lot of levels, the current provincial government in Alberta skates past a lot of this stuff because they think that no one in the public is going to sanction them or that enough of the public isn't going to sanction them for it. Okay, and I think, I think that's fair. But I also think too, um, there has been, I would say, since since 2019 when the UCP was elected it's it's true that there hasn't been really many course corrections but they have I don't even want to say slow down because in some cases they really didn't so in in some areas when they've made a decision to make a change you just don't hear about it right so it's it's not even that they that they won't admit they made a mistake but they won't even tell you that they're doing something different so that was what's something that I noticed with the parks, right? The initial, the initial announcement was, uh, this is going to save Albertans $5 million. And then it was, um, no, we're putting money into parks. We're actually spending more. We're going to spend 40 million to get all these up, which a lot of people, you know, probably rightly suspected that uh, it was just detailing the car before you sell it but still it was but that was that was unexpected right we're we're making these cuts to save five million dollars oh no actually we're pouring 40 million into them well and it's worse than that like they would actually then go and say if you're speaking our words back to us this is actually like and usually the line is NDP misinformation which yeah. is like I find it really interesting especially on some of these issues that how it gets 
fun as a partisan thing when it's often like grassroots members of the public who are like, hey, wait a minute. Uh, or we're only speaking your own words back at you. And I don't believe you when you say that this has changed because like, yeah, like we're comparing apples and oranges or various other sorts of things, right? I think that's part of the framing though. Like, mm -hmm. like Absolutely. they, the conservative parties, and I would love to say that all parties are, are good at this, but I just maybe like I spend too much time concentrating on the conservative parties. Uh, so I can't actually say that they all do it, but, um, but they're so good at creating their messaging and working on their brand. Uh, the big one that, that I was thinking of the inaugural UCP AGM. So that was 2018 in, in May. And this was, so they were, it was before they were elected, but Brad Wall was addressing the crowd and he mentioned how the NDP called Albertans sewer rats. And while he was speaking about this, I'm sitting there and I, I believe I even wrote, I know this isn't true. I know the background story of this, but even I have heard it so many times that I almost believe that that's what happened. And it is like, it is, their ability to stick to a particular story, a particular message is incredible. So this is where it's worth walking or like identifying the line between really good branding uh, and disinformation. So really good branding means that you would be crystal clear about who you are, like you could see a logo or something and like automatically associate that with the brand, things along those lines, right? Or you could hear like a catchphrase or something like that, like that's just good marketing. And like anybody who does marketing would be kind of like, yeah, of course, like you can see this in various other, other sorts of fields and it's not just politics. Often politics is a bit late to that particular game. Disinformation is different. Um, disinformation uh, with a D is when information, often much of it true, sometimes some of it false, but often much of it true is uh, deliberately mispresented in a manner that would get people to draw an incorrect conclusion. Now, misinformation is unwittingly spreading stuff like that disinformation. And so the, what you're describing there, that's not branding, that's disinformation. That's getting, wanting people to draw, using correct information, or at least like a twinge of correct information and trying to get them to draw an incorrect conclusion. Mm -hmm. uh, this is also one of these contexts where it's just kind of like, I miss norms. Like I miss the norms where politicians wouldn't do that because they would be able to like win with just like better persuasion as opposed to like distorting the truth or distorting actual like information um, to get people to draw like these incorrect conclusions, right? But the reason why I think it's being done, particularly in Alberta is like, it's also the erosion of another norm that I miss quite a lot, which is the idea that governments represent everyone, not just the mm -hmm. people who voted for them. And what I worry that I see in Alberta is there's this, like, this, this, this real political push to identify um, Alberta as being, or an Albertan as being a very particular kind of person, right? That you have to identify with a particular political party, um, that you have to think a particular way about industry and diversification, um, that you have to prioritize a certain kind of things. And if you disagree, you're just an Albertan, as opposed to like, if you disagree, like, you might have good reasons for it, and that we can have, like, full, detailed debates, um, and that it's often that, like, 
you know, there might be more than one right answer about these whole sorts of things. This is why I find the Auditor General's report, like, I think it presents a unique problem for a party that's like interested in using disinformation or wants to say like, you're either with us or you're against us. It's really hard to say that like auditors are NDP shills. Like you, you can't do that, right? And so it's been interesting watching the issues managers say, oh, well, we addressed everything. And it's like, yeah, because you don't have a choice actually right. That's right. in this context. Well, like, yeah. And the other thing that I find really interesting is with the Canadian Energy Centre, they're all just kind of like, you'll notice that they have nothing to say about like bad to say about the performance. And it's like, yeah, because that audit's coming. It's a separate thing. (laughs) It's a performance audit. And so like part of me is just like, that's going to be interesting when that drops, because like we might not be able to FOIP anything about the Canadian Energy Centre, but the Auditor General can do a performance audit of it. And that's when we're going to find out how well this stuff is done. So like all this to say, like, on something like parts, you can be like, um, oh, the NDP are lying when they're right. like, and, and maybe they are, like, I'm not going to adjudicate that. But like, you can't, what I find interesting about that one is this dismissal of like grassroots, like genuinely concerned, like broad based, like from every corner of the province, people are worried about this and it's being dismissed as a partisan attack, which is disinformation um, versus like, the very limited options that folks have to spin something like this particular report. Like it's what they, what they rely on is that most folks don't know who the auditor general is and don't know. Like, so the, the, so the like perfectly rational ignorance that regular folk would have about (laughs) these things. Yeah. That's being used in this particular context too. That's why I think that, that uh, something as simple as the, the crude by rail contracts is something people can understand. I mean, nobody wants to read an audit report, right? You see that thing land on, on, in your email and you're going, you're kidding. Because it, it looks boring. It has all sorts of phrases like gross debt that no one understands. And you have to read through the definitions and stuff. But uh, you don't need to be an accountant. You don't need to be more than 10 years old to know the difference between when someone is saying something that's not true and when they are. I was, I was saying to my family, I said, it's, you know, it's like a child standing there and saying, these are, are 19 apples and these are eight apples. And I've just ate 19. And you're looking at them saying, you didn't, you ate eight. Like mm-hmm. they don't need to be brilliant. You can just figure that out. That is not complicated. And yet these guys, as, as Melanie says, can sort of scale on and ignore it, say something, some baffle gab about it. Right now we're going to be focusing on, on, this is the hard part is so many issues come flying at us all the time and there there is so much that people like us are trying to keep on top of that it makes it hard to get any of this out into into the the general public you know so now i mean one of the things i was thinking about just recently was you know our covid numbers are starting to go through the roof they're worse than they were when when this shutdown happened the first time and kenny makes a statement that uh, we are not going to be shutting down the economy be, uh, and infringing on people's civil liberties because this is terrible. But so, for some reason, he was okay if infringing, quote unquote, on people's civil liberties the first time he shut down. So how does that work? You know, uh, I mean, I understand you can say the economy is doing this or the economy is doing that. But if your second reason for not shutting down is you don't want to infringe on civil liberties, why did you do it the first time? because there was a really good reason to do it. And this is the thing that irritates me is that like, you know this Susan, but like, I like this, this actually gets my goat regularly. This idea that um, freedoms in like Canada, unlike the United States, like the Americans did freedoms where like, unless it's written down, you don't have it. 
Canada, in contrast, was like, you have everything. We just set reasonable limits prescribed by law as can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. So the idea of like stay home because people are dying, this is reasonable in a democratic society. It's not an infringement or like technically it is, but it's one that we like, it's like the first Agreed thing that we to. said is okay to do when we yeah, wrote down the right. actual constitution. So this is the thing, you know, I got to say, I'm, I'm curious about how this is all going to play out over a couple of years in Alberta politics. Um, because I think this assumption that it's um, these chickens will never come home to roost because of like whatever assumptions people want to make about Albertans or the Alberta electorate or elections here or whatever, I would like, I think this is foolish. Um, and I keep thinking back to Sheila Frazier and an Auditor General's report in the early aughts about activities of the Liberal Party of Canada and the Quebec Liberal Party following the 1995 referendum. And I, I was been rolling around in my head because I was a research assistant on that project trying to like, oh, I was a research assistant at the time for colleagues who were trying to figure out uh, like why the federal government changed campaign and party finance laws. And they did in anticipation of this report dropping. And like, it's basically the liberals couldn't get cash and envelopes anymore, the federal party. Uh, and so this is how we got the pro vote subsidy. And like, they were like, but look at how amazing we are because we're going to like cap corporate and like union donations and blah, 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 blah. But like, I remember spending a lot of time looking at that and I still could not tell you the exact contours of everything that went on. Um, we didn't need to though. So that report drops in I think 2002, 2003, I can't even remember. By 2011, um, Liberal Party of Canada support like bottomed out and a lot of it had to do with Quebec and like political science spent a lot of time trying to figure out like was it like equal marriage that happened to get e like there and that's eroding like other sorts of known demographic factors that we know lead to liberal voting or things along those lines and the at the end of the day ultimately it was like the sponsorship scandal and that auditor's general report that kicked that off uh, within like let fewer than 10 years, like the ultimate end of that report was that like quote, the quote unquote natural governing party of Canada finished third right. for the first time in its history in an election, right? Uh, and so in this case, if I were uh, going to give the UCP advice, I don't think they would take it for me, but if I was gonna give it anyway, this is what I would say. And it would be the, like the rigidity is a problem. The assumption that you can do anything and have it not stick to the point where people are actually going to be like, no, thank you. Like, um, I do not think that you merit re-election and you certainly do not merit my vote for whatever reasons, even if they don't understand things like an Auditor General's report, or even if they don't understand all the contours and all the like social media shouting back and forth about um, various iterations of policy or whatever. Like the thing I would say is that these might come home to roost. Like I would not assume that the like support from the public is as rigid as the policy approach is. <laughs> like, like I, it seems it seems like folly to me. And I think too that, like, we'll until the until the polling starts. I mean, if CBC can do some of their amazing things that they did in the lead up to the 2019 election, or was that that was even longer, wasn't it? It was like within yeah, that was the road ahead. So it started yeah. a year. I was on like, again, proactive disclosure. I was I on know. the <laughs> academic advisory board for that. So there was one in 2018, one around the election, I think. And then one again, uh, this spring, and we happened to be in the field, uh, 
half the sample was collected when the whole Russia OPEC thing happened. Ah, okay. And then like, so COVID hit, like, I think maybe a week or 10 days after that, we can report from those data and natural experiment that like Albertans were really pessimistic about the economy. And then OPEC and Russia hit. And like, we went from like being super pessimistic to like no one having any optimism. Right. <laughs> well, it was really quite grim. Yeah. Anyway, okay. yes, I like if I can't speak for the CBC, but I would like them to keep doing right. That too. I, I would really love to know. Information. I would yeah. love to know what is going on on the ground, and that's that's where the Road Ahead series was so good because it was yeah. in it was in the field. There were focus groups, there were interviews. Okay. That is something that the majority of our polling, uh, Main Street, yeah. etc. They're just they're just doing the the phone the phone and internet yeah well and they're also just looking at like random vote attention snapshots or vote intention snapshots which are not super useful i mean they're interesting but they're not super useful one of the things that we can find through that cbc data um is a lot of motivated reasoning uh and so people who when the ndp were in government um talking about how like the deficit is terrible and it's so bad and like everything is awful and nothing that they're doing is good the moment that their party the ucp um, started wearing that deficit they're just kind of like actually it's not so bad yeah right? so partisans regardless of whatever party they are are motivated reasoners um the and so by motivated reasoning what i mean is that they overemphasize good information um and they uh for their team and they underemphasize good information for like the out group mm-hmm. uh and then like in reverse as well uh again the danger with this though is that partisans are motivated reasoners but nobody wins an election on partisans alone like you need no. other folk to vote for you and it's just <laughs> like i'm watching the other folk who are just like but i'm not a motivated reasoner and i'm looking at this and this seems real bad like, again, yeah. this Auditor General's report is like, you want to say that you're a competent economic manager? You cannot. Like, empirically, you absolutely cannot. So I, I have no doubt that partisans would be like, oh, it's not so bad. And I also remember watching partisans being like, I don't care if they break, like, party and election campaign finance law. Like, that's the whole kamikaze campaign, yeah. just as long as they beat the NDP. And it's like... Okay, no, this is, and this is the sort of thing where you can see that people are perfectly prepared to trade away democratic, like democratic norms, um, if they are a certain kind of partisan, like that, that's just a known thing. Um, How we evaluate that is a different question. But um, I keep coming back to this idea is like, people will all like a party will always need somebody who's not a partisan, and therefore somebody who's not so much of a motivated reasoner to vote for them if they want to win. That's Mm -hmm. the thing. And that's why I kind of wish, like I said, I hope that they do continue because I would rather know what's going on on those kitchen tables or at the kitchen tables. What are those discussions? Because I think you're right that, um, like, I mean, even even when we look at the U.S. election, there was there was strong uh, belief that Trump would win. All of the polls and all of the work was saying probably not. Um but actually, I refused to think one way or the other about that because 2016, seeing that so many people did decide to to oust him, um, and it and it very likely was that you know the non motivated reasoners who were looking at it saying this just isn't right. I mean, granted, he still got way more of the vote than we would have thought, but it's the swing right it's the those swing voters there's a similar narrative for 2019 in alberta and 2020 in the united states as we're taking into account where uh 2019 in alberta um the ndp held their vote in a lot of ways um Hmm. the ucp 
wins because demographics that typically don't vote. And I know, again, proactive disclosure, Elections Alberta hired Apathy is Boring, who hired me <laughs> to look at this particular demographic, <laughs> which are um, younger folks who aren't in post-secondary. And so younger men who yeah. weren't in post-secondary turned out in 2019 in ways that they hadn't before. Like, I can totally see the narrative for why the UCP was able to mobilize, like somebody like maybe under 30, Jobs, not... Yes. Yeah. Uh, but also like no post-secondary credentials. Like this is the idea of I should be able to earn 300K without like straight out of high school. And it's like, that's normal. And like, I'm really worried this idea that that wouldn't be normal. And if I just vote this guy in, I'll get my boom nostalgia back. Like we'll be able to just get it all back. Like that's, that's totally the narrative in 2019 in Alberta. Similarly, um, in 2020, uh, the really striking thing about 2020 is that in various places in the United States, you've got um, people who never voted voting. And that's why turnout has gone up. That's why that's, I think, one of the main reasons why Trump support went up in addition to Democrat support. But this is why something like Georgia's in play. Right. Um, and why people are just like Stacey Abrams and all the women that she works with. Uh, th that's the idea that they were actively fighting voter suppression. So you get like yeah. black folks who like typically wouldn't be able to vote because of like, like rules that still try to prevent them from voting. Um, so for me, the analysis then is always, okay, were there new voters or people who typically don't vote? Um, and can we see that they've done something systematically different than people who are more likely to vote on a regular basis? And I think in both elections, you can say, yeah, for sure. Uh, and then the next question is, so will they turn out next time? Mm. Okay. Yeah. And in, in both cases, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, I was gonna, Okay. Yeah, I was going to say, in both cases, sorry, we're so polite. <laughs> uh, I was going to say, in both cases, I think the answer might be no, or it depends on who those voters are. Um, so in the absence of, like, boom nostalgia, do I think that demographic's going to turn out the same way? Maybe, but only if they're really angry. Yeah, one, one thing Mel Melanie mentioned that I thought was interesting was the, this whole idea of Albertans starting to think of themselves as unique. It, it struck me as a little mini microcosm of the U.S., where you know, uh, Albertan exceptionalism, we are people of destiny, we are, um, uh, he's been talking about Alberta, Kenny's been talking about Alberta as the freest province of all, like, how could you yeah. be the freest province within a confederation? I mean, and that's just lunacy, right? But um, the, this worries me, because this is the ideological thing that you tell people who have nothing, right, who, who are starting to lose ground because you have failed to diversify the economy, you fail to anticipate what's going to happen when oil prices crash, you know, you're continuing to do what you've always done in the past, which is give out corporate subsidies and tax cuts, because that creates jobs and it doesn't and you just keep sticking with that plan. So what bothers me is, is how this continues to divide us, where people will just cling to this, this notion that, um, here we are on the on the prairies. We're in Alberta, and we're special. We're people of the land. You know, we we are farmers and ranchers, and we're not. Half of most of us live in the cities. But there's this strange sense of myth around who Albertans are, and and I think uh, Jason Kenny plays to that very very well. And I don't know how you you talk to people who are caught up in that little sort of bubble of I'm unique, I'm special, and someone has done this to me to slow me down.